0: Welcome to The Lisa Show.
1: When I was younger, we had to take piano lessons, and now, years later, I'm super, super glad that I did, and I enjoy playing the piano, and now I kind of wish that I could play more instruments. So that has transferred into an enthusiasm
0: uh-huh.
1: for musical instruments for my kids, some with success, some with not.
0: So when I was younger, I was given the opportunity to go to a summertime band camp. And when I went away to uh, this summertime band camp, I thought drums. I was going to, you know, I was going to bang the drums. And I got there and I went, well, this isn't nearly as fun. It's just, Mm. you know, the banging sound of the drum. So I found myself uh, playing the euphonium for several years for five years, it allowed me to travel. I didn't know this about to, you. To travel and to play with various traveling bands while I was in middle school and high school. Yeah,
1: euphonium.
0: The euphonium. It's like if the no, tu- I know what it is. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I but, mean you can. But for people who don't yeah.
0: know, if the uh, tuba had a younger brother, that's mm-hmm. what the euphonium is. Uh, looks like it's it's also called the baritone.
1: I don't know any parent who doesn't have the conversation what are we going to do about musical instruments <laughs> with in regards to their kids? And whether or not you have good memories about learning an instrument, it can be a really important and a rewarding part of your kid's life. And believe it or not, it doesn't have to be a battle that you would expect. A lot of those fights kind of about practicing and not just the idea of learning uh, couldn't be avoided with the, kind of setting yourself up for success. So how do you actually do that, though? What does that mean? Well, today we wanted to have a conversation with a guest, Jessica. Jessica Peresta, a music educator, and that uh, she also help, works to help other music educators become really good resources for, for students and parents. Um, and so we're excited to have you, Jessica, in on this conversation. Yes, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So I love the idea that you are passionate about this and that you just want to encourage everyone to be like, hey, there are better ways to sort of get kids to practice when you're trying to decide um, even before you've set out on this journey about which instrument to learn. Um, But I'm wondering if you could give us sort of a bird's eye view, right, of why it is, what what the problem is, of of why even before we've had this conversation, we know it's going to be a struggle.
2: Yeah, so first of all, I feel like a lot of parents just aren't comfortable with music education if maybe they are not like the three of us where you learn music in one capacity or another. So it's just the unsure of, will I even be able to help my child practice if they start music in any way? And then it also is the child maybe not sure that they can do it. And there's also a lot of other things pulling at kids' attention nowadays. I have three boys. I know this to be true. And then so... They just can get frustrated easily or not know if they're going to be able to accomplish this instrument. And the parents don't know if they'll be able to help them. So I think there's those stumbling blocks just to kind of get over with over
1: at first. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about approaches, you know, some are very hands on, some are very hands off. And there's lots of different, you know, the practice charts and ideas. Right. What approaches actually work?
2: So this definitely will depend on what teacher, if you're in a private lesson, like you said, the practice charts, some use them, some don't, some use, there's some great apps now for practicing and things like that. But the biggest advice I can give around this is to motivate your kiddos with praise. You know your kids better than anyone. Focus on how they're practicing to make sure it's the most efficient practice time when they sit down at their instrument. You can, even if you're not a musical person, you can kind of tell right away if they're just sitting there, you know, picking at notes or if they're really practicing. And set aside a time that works well for your family to have practice time, and that's important. Um, And you can also share stories with your kids about music and how you learn music or even that of a grandparent. And that will motivate sometimes your kids, too, because they're like, oh, you did something maybe not similar, but you have learned music before. So I think those things are important to consider.
0: If music isn't a part of your family's fabric, but maybe that child is looking to explore into it, how do you have that conversation if you're the the adult that has no idea what to expect?
2: Yeah, that's where I think technology nowadays comes in so handy because, you know, even YouTube – you can go and maybe it's not even watching someone play an instrument but you could watch a live performance or you could listen to an interview with another musician maybe your child has a favorite musical artist and maybe even listening to a interview by that person of how did they get started in music in the first place i think that will definitely sometimes help motivate kids i had a conversation with my son the other day about Ed Sheeran he really likes him um, and you know, I mean, he's cool, but I don't I'm not as into him as my son. But mm-hmm. we started talking about his history with his learning disability and things like that. And it really helped motivate him because it was just a cool connection story. So finding those connection stories for your child of who they're interested in or want to learn more about will really help.
1: So when you are talking to parents and they come to you with sort of like a, a stress or or a problem, what do you find that you're mostly talking about? Uh, well, uh, when it comes to practicing, yeah, so yeah, well, like I said, it just that
2: uh, my child doesn't want to or they're they would rather go play outside with their friends or they're so tired from school that they just it's like one more thing to do and I those mm. are usually the biggest mm-hmm. things I hear, and you know as a private lesson instructor, I can tell the kids who practice, and I can tell the kids who we've worked on the same song for four or five weeks in a row, and a lot then you kind of pick Break down like what's going on, and you figure out what's causing that. And that's, yeah. So, those are a lot of the things I've heard.
1: So, how does helping your kid find the right instrument play into all of this? Yeah, I think that plays a huge part in it (laughs) because when, and a lot of times that's hard to know, like what
2: instrument do I start them out on? But um, when you're, if your child is interested in learning an instrument, they will be excited about learning it. And a lot of times it is hard to find what that is, but you'll be able to tell, is your child practicing this instrument? Is it you wanting them to learn it or are they interested in it? And sometimes your kids won't come up to you and say, I'm ready to learn an instrument, but you can kind of see that they have a musical talent or they're just there's something there that you just want to pursue, so you start them on something. But yeah, I think when they are learning the instrument that really works, that they're really interested in it will motivate them to keep going for sure.
0: If you're just joining the conversation, we're talking with Jessica Peresta about being able to work with our kids and and introducing them uh, maybe to music lessons, musical instruments, and and, uh, the motivation to be able to do those things. I would be curious, is there you know lisa sort of queued up this conversation with the the basis of piano and it seems like for a lot of my friends who are musicians they sort of learned the piano and that gave them the introduction to music music scales notes etc and then maybe they adventured into the saxophone or the guitar do you think that that's a good basic easy to understand instrument and then it can be you know almost like a um like a, the the introduction uh, an introductory instrument to others
2: I really do. And I, I say that not because I am a pianist. You know, it's definitely a great starting instrument because, first of all, kids, if you're not familiar with what a clef is, when you're reading music on a staff, the clef is the treble and bass clef. They're learning all of it. They're, they're using their mind to read and then using math skills to help them with math. And it easily transfers to another instrument because they're already using, you know, their finger dexterity and finger strength. And by the time they, if they do want to go from piano to learning another instrument, a lot of that musical theory as well, like you mentioned, is already there. It's already been established. So it's easy. It's an easy transition to another instrument.
1: You know, I, I think it's an, a funny thing too, to talk about from like an educator's point of view of the things that they really want or excited to get to, but just do don't, aren't able to because of the time hasn't been sort of invested. and in, You know, it, it's just that kind of that higher level of just enjoying being able to play and really feeling it musically. Um, it, it, do you have an experience or an example where that really happened to you? And it was particularly, I don't know, like uh, encouraging and inspiring as, as a way to sort of help us understand what it is, uh, the, the, the big goal that we want for our kids? Inspiring kids to learn music—is
2: that what you're asking them?
1: Yeah, and I think that you know, going beyond just learning it, but then actually experiencing it.
2: Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, um, honestly, I think like I mentioned earlier, is making music relevant to your kids. Like, what are they excited to learn about? What are they, what are they passionate about? Not just with what instrument, but what mm-hmm. style of music? Is there a certain genre of music? Is there a way of learning that works best for him for them? I know. For example, when it comes to piano, method books are amazing and that's what you start. Those are the beginner you know, basic books, but those also don't work for every child. Some kiddos who maybe have a learning disability, that's really hard for them to learn that way. So it is about finding out what they're interested in and finding a teacher who's the right fit or finding the right musical ensemble that's the right fit if they're not in the private lessons. And just making it enjoyable, another way to do that is by being part of the learning process as a parent where you, are, you feel like you're just a part of it and you're asking questions and you're excited about them learning is a huge thing too.
0: What, what about, and this is not us, this is not the attitude of us, but I, I have heard this talked about among uh-huh. you know parents, uh, the, the parents who will say, why does he, she need to learn something like that? It's not like they're going to be a rock star or a professional musician. What do you think the benefit on just a, a, a kid's life is by incorporating music?
2: Yeah, that's everybody's not going to be a world famous musician. That was my dream growing up to be a concert pianist life shifted and it didn't happen. And that's okay. But everybody, you know, it's like kids that take sports. They're not all going to be going to the NBA and that's okay. But music is an outlet. It is definitely a way for kids to express themselves. It's important for brain development. It, like I mentioned earlier about learning piano, it really, when you learn music in general, it encompasses every subject matter and really um, helps your kid's whole brain. And it's also all around us, right? It's at sports events, church, school, commercials, ice cream trucks, the one that keeps driving in my neighborhood all the time. Mm-hmm. And so kids just growing to appreciate the arts, it'll turn them into adults. who want to advocate for the arts and in return will inspire their own kids to keep learning music.
1: You know, I think Ideally, you know, we all want our kids to be able to have a part of that. And whether our financial situation is a little bit tight or we've got lots of multiple kids, I wonder if, if everyone is aware of all the options that are available to them. And I'm, I'm wondering if you'll take some time to, to uh, help to sort of educate us all on some of the choices that we m- might have if we have extenuating circumstances that we might not have previously considered.
2: Yes, definitely. So what's really neat is a lot, there are so many nonprofits nowadays that they are providing instruments to schools for free, where their YouTube, like I mentioned earlier, it can be a mixed bag. Some of it's great, some of it not so much, but there's so many free lessons out there available too. So don't let the financial situation stop you, because there are even music lessons that give scholarships to kiddos. And so Look around, my first advice would be to look around in your community to see what's available. Even things like the YMCA or the Boys and Girls Club, a lot of times we'll have volunteers that provide instruments or free lessons. Um, And think about what your child would wanna learn. Is it an in-person lesson? Maybe there's an online lesson that's a better fit. And those are sometimes more affordable. Um, And and that's definitely dependent on what you want as a family too. But, um, or if they're wanting to join an ensemble, if it's a public school setting, Besides the payment for the instrument, which the band directors and orchestra directors are definitely willing to work with families as well. To be able to afford those instruments, but the programs themselves are part of the educational day.
0: You know, I want to ask one final question before we let you go, and it's sort of outside the box of the conversation that we've had, but it, it, it's adjacent, so I, I feel like it's appropriate. If we were raised in a household where music wasn't sort of uh, endorsed or influential, and as an adult, we really feel like we missed out, is this something that only the kids can do, or as adults, can we start to uh, spread our musical wings? Oh, completely.
2: Adults can definitely learn music. It is something, yeah, I'm so passionate about music, as you can tell. Uh, It won't look the same as it will for kids, of course, but I think what's neat about adults deciding to learn, for example, I had sort of picked up guitar, but it was the same semester as my piano recital in college, so I was getting blisters and all the things. So now, I'm wanting to pick up guitar again, and I'm wanting to learn. And people are like, oh, well, you're already a musician. It's totally different than piano. But adults, you can learn music. You're listening to this. Don't let fear hold you back of, oh, I'm so far removed from it, or I really wish I had kept going. It's never too late to learn a new skill. So definitely – adults
0: can definitely continue learning music as well. Jessica Peresta is a music educator, the founder of The Domestic Musician where she works to help music educators and entrepreneurs find their path to helping students love music. You can find more of her work in her book, which is called Make a Note, What You Really Need to Know About Teaching Elementary Music. You can find her on her podcast, The Elementary Music Teacher Podcast or online at thedomesticmusician.com You can also follow her over on Instagram at Jessica Peresta. Thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Lisa Show. We'll be right
1: back. Welcome to the Lisa Show. Uh, grandmothers have been an important leaders in families for generations, and in some societies, the actual political leaders. How are their roles changing in today's society with all their experience and wisdom? How can we draw on them for not only advice, but help? It's an overwhelming, you know, th- a transition, I think, that's happening in a lot of families cross-generationally. Richie, you've shared on this show the good memories that you have of your grandmothers. Yeah. And and I'm wondering um, if you have, have noticed um, a, a difference in the way that and the role that they've played in your life, whether it's for guidance or love or acceptance or or, or even like a stronger role.
0: Well, so I'll, tra- I'll, I'll turn this kind of on its head. So I'm yeah. watching as my mom. She's been a grandmother for a while. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting because some of my siblings are now having uh, younger kids again and I'm paying attention where I didn't with oh, the sure. first time she was kind of becoming grandmother. And so I've watched as she is changing and how she treats – Uh, the grandkids and how... Different than how she raised you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and in some comical ways, but also in in some very sweet ways where I remember those experiences when I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents, but... You know, grandmas were the listening ear, the the comfort, The sometimes they didn't even need to say anything. In fact, one of the thing I miss the most about my grandmother is that mm-hmm. she would, whenever I would visit her until the very end, she, she was able to comfort me, not saying anything, but she would grab my hand and put her other hand on top of my hand. So I'm like a hand sandwich and she just would look at me and it would be like, yeah. And and I really I really didn't have to I didn't have to say anything. She didn't have to say anything. But it was just that knowing and understanding.
1: Uh, A special experience that I had with grandmothers is that my my grandmothers my maternal and my paternal grandmothers were friends. They went to college together back in the day, and and they were friends. Later, their kids obviously got married, and but it was nice. And they are both very very different. I had one my grandmother Margaret is very um, artistic. Had a had a lot of children, very nurturing. My my grandma, um, Amy, was a very um, uh, very intelligent and uh, very driven. And they both came from different backgrounds, had different strengths, um, but were great friends and um, had a huge influence on in my life. And as I look forward and I look at the role that my parents and my husband's parents play in our kids, and that. I, I am struck by the the force for good that grandmothers can be in society and mm-hmm. helping to navigate that. And, and I'm wondering how we can use that force um, better. yeah, you know and and more pointedly, I think. Um, uh, and so we have invited Keen Berger, who's the author of the book Grandmothering and the Grandmother of Three, to ha- continue this discussion about the role of grandmothers. Welcome Keene. Well, thank you very much. I am
3: thrilled to be with you. And also, this is a great discussion. I really interested in your grandmothers.
1: Oh, um, yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, I, my grandmothers have had a huge impact in in my life, um, I, and I, I'd love that's to. That's the ask, way it should be. It really should. It should. I be. wonder if, though, if it's such an untapped resource. Do you think that we that we are? I don't want to say using grandmothers, but do you think that we are folding them into our our lives in the most effective way? Um, the, grandmothers zigzag in this culture
3: right now. Mm-hmm. um sometimes they are very distant and that is a bad thing and sometimes they are too intrusive and that's a bad thing too yeah. so you're right where the grandmothers themselves need to find that you know that sweet spot that sweet spot in the middle where they are part of the family but they are not trying to be the matriarch so that's that's what that's how we should use them. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Keen, you yourself
0: that... are a grandmother of three. How have you navigated it? Are you succeeding, or do you find yourself either being too present or not present enough?
3: Both, both, all. all. Oh, really? But, um, <laughs> that one of the reasons I wrote the book is to, you know, I am a developmental psychologist, a professor, so I know a lot. But then when it comes down to the actual grandmothering, I thought, let me see what I know. Let me apply it. And I I think what my experience teaches me is that I'm quicker to notice. I'm quicker to notice when I have overstepped or understepped. Um, but I still overstep and understep, unfortunately. But, it's. I mean, I say, oh, my gosh. Luckily, my children understand that. Um, so they are quick to say, no, no, Mom, no, 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 no. Yeah. Or, Mom, <laughs> I need you now. I really need you, and I say, okay. You know, I, I'm happy to, to be needed, but uh, it's not easy. Just
1: I, I like want to this, yeah, well, I, I wanna get to this. Yeah, well, I want to get to those specifics of grandmothering okay. and things that that work. But before I do, I'm, I want us to take a, a, a larger look at it, and and um, because I'm wondering, in your research for this book, what the role of grand, that grandmothers play right now in today's society.
3: Right. Uh, you you touched on it already. Um, um, what should be the role and what all, sometimes is, at least half the time, is a very good listener. Um, parents, of course, sometimes react too quickly when the child says something that seems radical. And grandmothers have seen it all. So they listen. And that is very important. We all need somebody to talk to um, who will... who who we know loves us, and will hear ideas that are brand new or whatever. Um, that's what grandmothers do, and that is very important today's society, because as you know, too many people are too depressed, too quick to turn to drugs, too, I mean, there there's some real hazards out mm-hmm. there that uh, grandmothers can be one of the defenses against.
0: Oh, yeah. One of the things that I love is the, uh, I, I'm not sure if it's a famous quote from someone, but I know I, I picked it up somewhere. It says, grandmothers and grandchildren like each other because they have the common enemy in the parents.
3: Yes, yes, yes. Ouch! Yes, <laughs> I put that in the book, actually. And so I said you coined that, the phrase. That's careful. where it is. Be careful with that one. It is, uh, it's uh, It's. true, and it's funny. But on the other hand, sometimes the grandmothers make the mistake of joining an alliance against the parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a real mistake because the parents are, you know, crucial. They're also crucial. So they need support too. Um, That doesn't mean they're always right. Nobody's always right. But, um, but, you know, and unfortunately, if the grandmothers play that hand too much and side with the grandchild against Mm -hmm. the parents, that works for a year or two. And then the child goes disappears um, mm. you know ha- plague on both your houses
1: oh wow um,
3: so, so uh, it's not it it doesn't work out well it might seem good at the moment but it does not work out well to you know mm-hmm. go on one. and it's just it it reminds me of parents you know if if a mother and father are fighting yeah it's not a good idea to take sides with the children or the parents I mean, the good idea is to try to help them work it out.
2: It's in everybody's best interest. You know, in be, supportive. Be, interest.
3: Whatever, you know uh, be supportive. Listen, listen. Um, now, you know, one of the other problems in our world is people get divorced. But even then, um, grandmothers need to try to make sure that both parents are still involved with the children. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not a good idea to turn away from half or anyone Ever. right? We're That's talking an exaggeration. with exaggeration. I mean, no. No, there are you right. know, there are exceptions, of course, but but the, the general rule is,
1: you know, try to listen, try to understand, find the common ground. That's it. We're talking with Berger, who is a uh, professor and author of the book Grandmothering: Building Strong Ties with Every Generation. Um, a lot exactly. of people struggle to accept help from from yeah. their mothers, uh, their mothers-in-law, especially when it comes to parenting. Sometimes there's even like a little bit of resentment there. Uh, what, what is More your advice? More than a little. More than a little. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to say it nicely. Uh, there are about 10% <laughs> of the grandmothers in
3: this nation are persona non grata in the family. The, the, the mothers say, do not come here. We will see you at Thanksgiving, period. Um do not send gifts. Your gifts are no good for us. I mean, really extreme, which is bad for the kids. So what do you do but, in that situation? Uh, How do you handle it? W- well, I mean, pre- you you prevent it is the best way. You know, early on, when, the, when your son first brings home this woman who is your rival, but is his love, you make friends with her. <laughs> I was interested to hear that. Your, your grandparents, or your grandmothers were friends with each other. Oh, uh, yeah. That is, that is how it should be, but that is not how it always is.
1: No, I didn't realize and, how uh, unique it was until I got older.
3: Yes, yes. Because there is a lot of that. I mean, we all want. I want my grandchildren to like me more than their other grandmother.
1: Right. (laughs) And I have to to watch that. I'm not even a grandma yet. I'm not even close. And I know that about myself, that I'm going to be competitive. I think it's...
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's in our... I don't know if it's in our our DNA or in
1: our culture, but it's certainly a problem. And
3: same with the mothers and the grandmothers, especially the mothers of the sons. The son is, you know... Hmm. There are two women he loves His wife, we hope And his mother, we hope And those two women If he has to choose between them Which sometimes happens We hope he chooses the wife yeah, it's You know, the mother the of interest. his children yeah. And uh, the grandmothers Have to You know, accept that this this Mother, this daughter-in-law Has mm-hmm. some different ideas about What to feed the children How to discipline them and um, and there are many ways to do it right. um you know it, it, it you know people some people, their parents are quite indulgent. some people, their parents are incredibly strict, and yet the children grow up and seem like pretty good people. so um so it's not as if there's only one way right That's the other but thing, I do I do f- I
1: like what you're saying though about prevention uh, a great gift that my parents gave me was. This is between you and your husband. You know, they they were very clear that you choose your, you know, spouse. And my grand yep. and my both of my grandmothers did this really cool thing where they would pull me aside. Um, each one of them did that and said, oh, you're you're so lucky that she's your grandma about the other one. Hmm. So my grandma Margaret oh, nice. would say, oh, oh you've nice. got the nice, yes. you know, you're so lucky to have Amy as your grandmother. She's so accomplished. She's so kind. She's so, you know, this. And then... um uh, Amy would say the same thing. Oh, you're so lucky to have the grandmother Margaret. She's so exactly. kind, and I mean, it was kind of a cool thing that they would say. They both admired each other. Obviously, that's not the case that everyone is going to be able, to, you know, to have. Um, you have a lot of experience in this realm of of having kind of like sort of to to reset sort of uh, these these boundaries. What's the best way to approach that?
3: Yeah, ma'am. conversation. Um, but grandmother, one of the things that the middle generation doesn't realize is that the grandmother generation has a lot of experience and a lot of activities. Somehow we have this idea mm-hmm. that the grandmothers are sitting around waiting to be called to babysit. Not true. You know? right. <laughs> so they have to talk about it. You know, I really need you to pick up the children on Wednesday. Well, actually, that is a terrible day. How about Thursday? I mean, you know... Mm-hmm. As it is in real life, you know, they you, they have to understand why Wednesday is an important day for each, and then one of them figures out an alternate plan. That's how it has to be. Yep. And uh, yeah. instead of you know resentment, grandmothers yeah. say, you know, they always call me, but I they don't even ask. And the parents mm-hmm. say, you know, she drops by without asking. I mean, they're they're obviously if they talked. They would
0: figure it out. Yeah, it, it's an um, assumption, I guess. Right? There just needs to be this clear, very um, open, but also fluid conversation of these are the things that we expect from you as as a grandmother, and here's what you can expect, and these are the boundaries that we're uh, we yes. we kind of anticipate. But you know, those things can change. I think it's a, a different thing from having uh, grandbabies to having grand teenagers to yes. having yes. To having grand Thank adults, and those things transition quite yeah. a bit.
3: Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, one of the things I wrote about it in the book, um, My I was taking care of my little grandson. Um, I was supposed to get him up in the morning, get him dressed, and get him off to school. Um, he was three. Um, and so they had forgotten to, they put on his clothes very nicely, but they forgot to pack his lunch. So I thought, oh, I can pack lunch. Now, first of all, I knew not to pack peanut butter because a lot of schools are peanut-free. Sure. So I thought, okay, new new plan. So I had to look for things that were healthy. One of the things I packed was a granola bar, mm-hmm. which as soon as he saw it, he showed his teacher, it has nuts in it. It never occurred to me to read the in- ingredients. The other thing that I did is I saw these two little wrapped candies in the refrigerator. I thought, oh, well, you know, I know he's not supposed to have candy, but little ones, okay. So I put them in his lunch, and he asked his mother, Mom, is dog food good for me? His mother said, No, why do you ask? And he said, Grandma packed two little dog treats in my lunch, and I ate one, but then I thought, this is not so good. I did not realize, of course, you know, they looked—they were just wrapped little candies is what they looked like. Anyway, so that's the kind of thing where you, you know, grandmothers really need to stop, and, and what I should have done is said, uh, you forgot to pack lunch. I could have called them up. They were both at work. Um, what should I give him? And they would have said, oh, whatever. But but I didn't. I thought I was being good. I thought I was taking away a problem instead of adding a problem. Luckily, my little three-year-old grandson was smart. So that was, I mean, that's how it goes. You, You have to talk about these things. And my daughter... Laugh at the whole thing. I was going to say, it's, it's
1: funny, though. you, yeah. you got to laugh at things yeah. like that and allow, uh, allow the changing relationship to do just that, to change, and, and not force it to be something. Yes, and I can
3: imagine another parent saying, well, you can never, ever have oh, yeah. lunch again. Mm. Now, my, grand, my kids didn't do that.
1: You know, there are like, some my, people— My son-in-law was the one who laughed the hardest.
3: Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm so, sure.
1: We have time for one more question, um, and okay. I for some of the people may be listening to this conversation and and think to themselves, oh, I, I want a better relationship with uh, with either my my grandchildren, um, my my daughter, my son, whoever it is, or um, you know uh, on the other side of that, and and the relationship may be strained. What's your advice yeah. to mending that relationship yes. um, as, as a first step?
3: Yeah. Well, the first step is just to talk to them a little bit. You know, try to realize that every person is different. You know, make make. You know, my best friends are not like me always. They don't agree with me always on um, any kind of issue. But that they're still my friends. So try to think of it that way. But the second one is if there's really a strain. Find a mediator, (laughs) find, uh, you know, a family therapist who is really up to the job or somebody who the both generations trust. It could be a distant relative. I mean, find somebody because sometimes it's really hard to listen um, when you're being attacked (laughs) Um, or when somebody has very different values. Find somebody who can help you really hear each other that's my advice it's
1: definitely worth worth the effort well, thank you so much keen you thank you very much okay take care kane Bye-bye. berger is a professor of psychology at bronx community college author of the book grandmothering building strong ties with every generation you can find more information about her at dot com. you're listening to the lisa show Welcome to The Lisa Show. Do you ever wonder when you left childhood and suddenly became an adult with all these responsibilities? Yes. Like there's a moment.
0: Are you going to solve how we can go back to being a, (laughs) that's not this? You can't. That's not what we're talking about.
1: Because I think that no matter what your age is, sometimes we find ourselves thinking we're just kids trying to figure out how life works. Yes. You know, we still feel that age. I don't know what even that means. Well, that's exactly how Sarah Merrill felt when she started her Instagram turned blog, Big Kid Problems. And what started out as small has really got a cult-like following thanks to her witty yet relatable humor. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, You know, that moment, I think it's such an interesting idea when you're like, oh, no, I've suddenly got big kid problems, which is, you know, what you write about. Was there a definitive moment for you? You
4: know, um, when I started, this account is kind of that definitive moment. I was actually in college. I was getting ready to graduate and really join the adult world and join the (laughs) real world. Yeah. And yeah. And I was kind of, you know, getting my ducks in a row and I had to like learn all of these things, you know, like how to get an apartment and how to do all of this real life stuff. And I kind of had a moment of like, oh, God, I'm not ready for this. Like, I still feel like
1: a kid. That's yeah so, so I started
0: just, funny.
4: yeah, I know so I just started kind of making up little jokes about it and putting them out on Twitter, and that's kind of how this thing started
0: so it's jokes that turned into a blog, give me a little bit more information if someone is listening to this and has no idea what it is that you do,
4: yes. <laughs> You're not alone. My parents are also very confused. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Now now you're on the internet, Sarah. What is this job you're doing?
4: Yes, literally. Um, So, yeah, so I I basically started just making up little jokes, little uh, tweets, actually, that started on Twitter. Um, Because at the time, not to date myself too much, but this was before Instagram came out when I was in college. Um, So Twitter was the big way that I liked to procrastinate at the time. So I was really just coming up with, like, a little 140-character jokes. Um, and it just started getting popular around my college campus. I think it was, it was a total secret. I wasn't, uh, it was an anonymous account. So there was kind of like whisperings around my college campus. Like, I think this person goes to, you know, Florida state. And so it started to pick up some steam and it was just so much fun for me, uh, watching this little thing grow, um, you know, behind the scenes. And from that, I moved it over to Instagram. And this is where memes really started to take off on Instagram. And basically, I was looking at some of these accounts that are big meme accounts. And um, I was like, these are basically like the jokes I've been writing with just an image underneath <laughs> That's so them. so funny. So yeah, I started creating my own memes and then getting picked up by some of these larger accounts. And then I really moved over to um, other platforms as well, like my blog and then my podcast. So it's kind of taken this whole this little concept of adulting and not wanting to be an adult and um, just, you know, kind of moved it all over all over the place and, and have been working on it ever since
0: i want to give an example just because yeah, i fe- let's give I, a couple I, examples I, of some of these tweets it's we've pretty been funny. sort of stalking you as we've been chatting online um one of your most recent posts that says sorry i didn't text you back i was opening and closing the same three apps on my phone <laughs> and lost track of the concept of time how many of us have done that today <laughs>
1: or i love really? this marriage is just yelling have you seen my blank every day while the other person ignores you <laughs> or for halloween i'm dressing up as 2019 me and just putting on jeans <laughs>
0: yeah. i feel so dressed up
1: i love it um You know, it's one thing to have these ideas. It's another thing to put them on a social media platform, you know, from Twitter to Instagram and and so on. When did you realize, hey, this is getting kind of popular. I'm going to lean into this way of life.
4: Uh, I mean, really, really from the beginning, Mm -hmm. um, you know, even when it started just picking up that small following, I think I had like 100 followers and I was like, oh, this has legs (laughs) I'm going all in, you know, um, Really, I mean, truthfully, I, I didn't necessarily, like, do it for a following at first. It was kind of, like, just, like, for me. like mm-hmm. it, was al- it was almost like a form of therapy in a way because I had all of these, you know, like, thoughts and, and making light of them and making them funny, like, just, you know, made getting through life a little bit easier.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
4: so, yeah, and I mean, probably about four or five years ago, When it really started to explode on Instagram, like I was, you know, and then brands were reaching out to me, you know, like, Oh, can we talk to your manager? And I'm like, Yeah,
0: you're like, Wait, wait, what? (laughs) You're like, Hello, yes, this is the manager. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Exactly. Exactly. But I started realizing and then seeing of course other accounts, you know, turning their platforms into a business and I was like, Oh wow, I should really I should really lean into this and, and um, you know, make this my Make this my full-time thing. I mean, at the time, I had a, I had a real job. I worked in the corporate world for years, and it was soul-sucking and draining. And Big Kid Problems was really my passion project. And so, you know, after a couple years of starting to monetize the account, I realized I could actually turn it into my full-time job.
0: And you, and you say real job, but I know anyone who has done things like what you're doing, mm-hmm. like there is a constant demand that isn't like what you would get in a regular 9-to-5 job.
4: Oh, that's the truth. (laughs) I wish someone would have told me that before. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. No, it it definitely is a lot more um, time consuming than I thought. And exactly like everybody says this about running your own business, but like you just don't get time off. Like I work, I'm working constantly, Um, but at least it's fun work. Like I really do enjoy a lot of it. I mean, there's obviously the the other parts of running a business that aren't so fun, like, you know, managing your books and all of this stuff. But uh, for the most part, it's it's pretty enjoyable. So I'm happy to do it.
1: And so for those who are unfamiliar, when you just say, hey, and then I just decided one day to monetize my blog, and then I quit my job. There's a lot of steps in between those two things. And so what does a typical day look like for you?
4: Oh man. I mean, that's the thing is like no day, no, no two days really look the same. And I know that's like the most generic answer ever, but it's true. Um, I do a lot of time batching. So I, you know, cause I have multiple channels, so I have my podcast is a huge focus for me. So, um, you know, a couple of days a week I'm, I'm working through the process of getting my next week's episode up. So mm-hmm. I'm, you know, booking guests, doing interviews, um, you know, uh, doing editing and then making assets for those interviews and promoting those. And so that's just the show portion. And then of course I have my Instagram, so I'm churning out content, um, for that throughout the day. I have like my mornings and getting back to like, you know, um, uh, partnership emails and other brands that are, you know, looking to work with me and running through contracts. I mean, it is, it's Hmm. a lot of different stuff. Um, and because it's so on the fly, you know, I have, it's not like a, a typical job where I have like my set kind of schedule that is is pretty similar week after week. Um, you know, it, it just it changes so much yeah. depending on the season. Like we're going into holiday season, so even that gets a little bit crazy um, with just promotions and partnerships and all the fun things. So, yeah, it's it's crazy, um, but it's it's fun.
0: We're talking with Sarah Merrill, who is the writer and creator of Big kid problems. And something that sort of sticks out to me is that we've talked a lot about a blog. And I know some people would say, blogs are dead. Blogs are the past. But I I think it seems to me that you would not say that.
4: You know, I, I do think there is a little bit of truth to that. Uh, it's definitely not what it was in like 2008 through 2012, where I think was like the golden age of blogging. Mm-hmm. Um, I really look at my blog as just an extension of my of my brand. Um, and so it, it depends. I think people, people have like their own favorite ways of consuming content. Um, some people like to listen, like they listen to a podcast or they just like the funny little jokes on Twitter and Instagram. Um, but I try, I try to take it a little bit deeper in my content. Like I like to take a, a big kid problem, um, if you will, and dissect it a little bit more on the blog. So if somebody wants that and wants a little bit more um, depth, to the content, I think the blog is a great way to go. And, um, you, you know, it's just hmm. it's, that that's kind of how I've, I've approached it. So because
1: you ri- write about the aging process, right? Like growing up and, it, you know, these are big kid problems. What has that process of aging been like for you?
3: <laughs> oh, oh my God. I, mean, <laughs> oh, I know that's a start? very
1: loaded question, but there you have it. <laughs> yeah. Where do we start? Um
4: I mean, I, I, I think there's, there's layers to that. I, you know, I think um, there's challenges to growing up. I mean, life changes. Like that's, yeah. that's, kind of, that's kind of the gist. I, I mean, when I started this account, I was 22 years old. And so my big kid problems at 22 look a lot different at 32. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like like I, what like, <laughs> like what would be
0: different from oh, a 32 year old to a 22 year old? But but that to me is one of the things that I think is not only so unique but just such a great. Um, opportunity because the internet doesn't let go of things like to be able to yeah, see true. and because you're so open and share, like I can see what 22 year old Sarah was worrying about and juxtapose that with 32 and be like, wow, the growth or, you know, I saw that coming from 22 to 32 or whatever the thing may be. It's also that extra level of kind of a journey that we take with you.
4: Yeah. I mean, that is honestly one of my favorite parts of the whole thing is I can go back and see content I made when I was 22, 24, 25, and I read it, and I'm like, oh, I know exactly how I felt in that moment. Oh, it takes you back. I can go back. Yeah, Mm. I can go back in time, basically. Um, And that's really why I wanted to create the podcast and blog is because I, now looking back, I have some perspective, and I want to take the big kid problems I was writing about in my earlier life or in my 20s, and now as a 32-year-old, I can be like, hey, (laughs) Don't worry about that boy that didn't text you back because X, Y, and Z, you know, like I can can actually, it's going to be okay. Yeah. I can, I can shed a little bit of uh, wisdom and a little bit of insight to my younger self and that, that's kind of a. that's kind of what I wanted to do with, with my blog and podcast.
0: It, it It's a fun thing, both looking backward and then also looking forward, knowing that one day you'll look backward, which I know sounds super inception-y, but I'm just, uh, what, a, <laughs> what a fun opportunity that you have to be able to do that and that you are so willing to share that with folks. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the thing, too, is I, I think my my, my my parents were very concerned at first. They're like, do you really think that you'll be 42 writing memes on the internet and i'm like yeah.
0: <laughs> i hope <laughs>
4: <laughs> well and if they big problems go, go away they don't go away no they,
1: they don't change. that's they they really don't and our ability to to look for ways to cope with them do not change and 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 you've tapped into humor which people are looking for all the time i can't think of a time of life when I haven't been looking for for humor to deal with b- problems big and and small. Um, is that your natural di- sort of disposition to find the humor in a situation? Because you're looking for content for your blog, or is this that just how you are, or is that a learned skill? I think
4: it's I think it's part of just who I am as a person. Is just like finding like just I have a very dry sense of humor. Um, mm-hmm. And at this point, because I've been doing it so long, like I, my fiance and I joke that I like think in terms of memes, like I'll see something random and I'm just like, I just, it just, it it comes so naturally at this point. Uh, It's like a language. I feel like I'm fluent in memes. I
0: I love this. Uh, We were able to find a clip of you talking to your parents, explaining what it was that you uh, do. And as I understand, it goes a little something like this. So. So you're so you're just going to be on the Internet. Is that in an office that you'll go to? Uh, no, no. As a matter of fact, I you know can do that from wherever I want. And what hours do you work uh, whenever I want, uh, mom and dad? Well, and how are you going to know that you're going to make the money? Well, I don't actually know that. And if people's tastes change, it, it may not be a thing that I continue to do all right, sweetheart, we just love you. I just We just want you to, you know, do your best. We're so proud of you. It's very specific. And then lean over and be like, well, yeah, we don't understand what she's doing. It, it's an amazing thing that you've accomplished to those that, that think, hey, I'm witty. I think in memes. I'd like to start out mm-hmm. and do something like this. Can they still get in? And what would you recommend to them?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I, my My advice for this is because I think a lot of people – you know, just like want to get on the internet and go viral and have it all, sure. you know, happen really quickly. Cause you see that that happens to some people. I mean, that didn't happen for me. This has been something I've been growing over 10 years. It's happened slowly. Um, I think it's just, you have to want to do something. Like I want to put up content every day. Like I like creating. Um, so worry, like, don't focus so much on the audience, focus on like the content that you mm. want to put out there and then it's not work. Then it's just fun. And then watch the people roll in afterwards.
0: Sarah Merrill is the writer and creator of Big Kid Problems. Your podcast is called Big Kid Problems as well?
4: Yes, it is. Big Kid Problem Podcast.
0: Tell people how often you put that out and where they can find that.
4: Yes, it comes out every week and it is on Spotify, Apple Music, basically anywhere you get your podcast, you can find it. Um, we distribute everywhere. So check it out. It is so much fun. And it's definitely like my main focus right now. I'm putting all my energy into the podcasting basket and just having a blast with it.
1: So anyone listening, come hang out. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your perspective and most of all your
0: humor. She didn't tell you, but I will tell you, you should subscribe to the Big Kid Problem podcast. You know where? Wherever you get your podcast, and I know you get it because you listen to the Lisa show there, so you don't miss a single <laughs> exactly. second a great way, and thank you for being with us, Sarah.
1: We often are weighed down by a lot of life challenges, family problems, work, fatigue, among other issues. Sometimes it's hard to find the good things of life. And then, with the added pressure that you can't do your best unless you're the happiest version of yourself, it can all be really overwhelming. Well, today we want to talk about how to find happiness and joy, even in challenges, maybe especially in challenges. We'll see. And we're uh, joined today by Michelle McCullough, uh, who's a motivational speaker and author, a friend of the Lisa Show. And we're going to be just discussing. Discussing finding joy in our life challenges. Welcome, Michelle. I am so happy to be here. Um, how do you not let hardships interfere with your happiness when it seems like an inevit- it, it, when it seems inevitable?
5: Well, I think the first part of that is allowing yourself to feel all the feelings. I think it's a great joy in our human existence to f- be able to feel sad and to be able to feel worry and to be able to feel other things. But I just love the idea that if you're going through something hard, don't stop and build a house there, right? So (laughs) um, allow yourself to understand that things can be hard and to try to know that it's okay to navigate all those feelings, but just find ways every single day to say, hey, this is a challenge, but I'm going to choose to find some happiness even for just a moment anyway.
1: Do you think that our society is obsessed with positivity? Well, so I
5: am lovably quixotic, which I am an idealist, and yeah. I like to believe that that can be the case. And so a lot of what I do with companies and individuals is around happiness, and so I love to live there as much as possible. I don't think that we focus on it too much, and I don't think we focus on it not enough either. Mm. I think that every day is just a matter of balancing Who we are and what we're doing and making sure that while I don't believe in life balance, I do think that we can balance out our emotions into a place where we kind of choose to say, okay, right now, do I like what I'm feeling? Yes or no. And if you don't like what you're feeling, what are you going to do differently to Mm. to take it to the next level? And so sometimes it's not about overnight like crazy happiness in an instant but you know what if I could be just one point happier on a scale from one to ten and so I think that we can be having these conversations and we should be especially with all the challenges that are out there in the world and all the mental health issues that are happening I'm not a doctor but I do think that for the majority of us we can choose to feel a little bit happier
0: even in any moment Oh Sure, easily for you two, but you guys don't know the pain and the unhappiness. That's what I feel like a, a lot of people yeah, will express, right? I'm the excep- right?
1: exception. <laughs> sure,
0: sure. Yeah, you wish your happiness, you hope for your happiness, but you haven't been through the struggles that I've been through. What do you say to those, folk- those well, folks? Well,
5: I think the great equalizer is that we all have challenges. Some of us are just more public about them than others. And I think that if you walk around believing that you're the one who's has the hardest life, well, then you'll probably figure out and find evidence to prove that. And if, But if you realize that everyone else around you is carrying heavy baggage and big loads and other challenges, then you might just say, you know what, let's give each other a break and realize that we're all carrying heavy, hard things. I teach a principle called the plastic bag principle that just says your baggage doesn't define you. But it's how you carry it and how you acknowledge everyone else's baggage on the path that helps make you stronger. And so as you think through that, it's a matter of not just getting stuck into what your problem is and saying my challenge is bigger bigger than yours, but just acknowledging that everyone struggles with things. I love the old yeah. adage that says, if we hung our problems on the line, you'd take yours and I'd take mine, that sometimes we're comparing some other people's Um, front lines and that you know they like they say that we compare our behind the scenes to other people's highlight reel Mm -hmm. but the truth and the reality if we were to get into the nitty gritty we would probably walk away with our own challenges
0: michelle mccullough a friend of the lisa show and helping us find happiness through those hardships thanks for being here
1: thank you for listening to the lisa show